Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the final few verses in Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesians. And this is one of those uh, parts of a letter or a book of the Bible that I think sometimes we could just kind of rush by or brush it off, uh, attach it to some other part, uh, earlier text, and, and just kind of, you know, say a little, you know, few sentences and move on. But I really think there is a rich um, value in these verses that, that we don't need to rush past. And, and it's important for us to take a moment and slow down and, and really see what Paul is trying to teach us here. Because this is very important. Even those four verses, and even though it's like a final greeting your, your Bible may have in a headline, um, it's, it's, in, it's really important. And Paul is, has just come out of this whole discussion of spiritual warfare. We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, showing us what the true nature of spiritual warfare is, and it's not all the craziness we make it out to be, but it's, it's really living a holy life and growing and advancing the kingdom. That, that's what spiritual warfare looks like, is taking the gospel and advancing the kingdom into the darkness, creating little outposts of light all over our community that point people back to him. And when we properly understand spiritual warfare, we begin to understand Paul's emphasis on the grace of God in our lives. To be unified and to stay unified can only be done by the grace of God. You, you take any group of people and try to get them together, one, is hard, <laughs> but get them to stay together is impossible apart from the grace of God. And so Paul is just emphasizing that grace over and over in the book of Ephesians. And he didn't proclaim grace so that we might make light of sin. It's not what he's doing. We, he, he's not proclaiming and emphasizing grace so much that we would stop fighting sin in our life. Instead, as, as one commentary put it, we herald God's amazing mercy to join with the Spirit in stirring up such a love for God in His people that when the day of evil comes, they will gladly put on the full armor He provides to fight for His purposes. Then, despite the hardships and the pain that God's people may face in the battle, they will stand strong in the power of His might. Paul is encouraging us. He is urging us to understand the grace of God, to understand how much we are loved, so that when that time comes to fight, we fight because of love, not because of compulsion or duty, and I have to do this, but because we've received the love that God has so richly poured out on us. So he spends the first three chapters just enumerating all the gifts of being in Christ. All of the things that he did first, before we did anything. Christ came and gave his life for us, his enemies. That's love. 
Paul, as Brian reminded us last week, then urges, um, that Paul urges the Ephesians to pray for him. Reminding us that spiritual battles are not won by human knowledge. That, that's not what's going to make you effective in spiritual battle. Or a person's position in the church. Here, Paul's an apostle. Paul's not saying it's a given for me that I'm going to win the spiritual battle because of who I am and what my position is. Paul's example of humility in asking the Ephesians to pray for his own spiritual warfare is communicating how much Paul valued the role of this church in his life. I'm reminded of the words of a pastor when reading these verses. Tender words build strong hearts. Love changes and recharges the will. Thus Paul's final words to the Ephesians are a flood of affection. In addition to the affection we see in these words, we also find a challenge for us this morning. We see that in verse 24, when he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, who love incorruptible. One last time we see Paul using the grace and love of God to grow our love for God and each other and hope for his purposes in battle. Paul's message is clear in Ephesians. Love is power. Those that have a solid grasp on the grace of God, a solid grasp on that grace, those are the ones most willing to fight and expand his kingdom through sharing the gospel and making disciples. If you, if you don't have a firm understanding of the grace that you've been given, th then you're not out there sharing it with others. You're just trying to keep whatever you got to yourself. But when you understand the love of God, the, the grace that has been poured out on your life, you can't help but share that with someone else. You, you can't help but grow someone in their faith so they can understand that more and more. So let's look at our passage this morning, but before we read it together, I want to help you with a name that might trip you up. Paul's going to talk about his friend, Tychicus. Repeat that with me. Tychicus. Tychicus, right? All right, so let's read this passage together as a church, starting in verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible.
All right, so a couple of things. I want to break this sermon up into two short sections. Um, the first is going to be dealing with verses 21 and 22, so if you're kind of making little headings in your notes, we're going to deal with that, and then we're going to deal with verses 23 through 24. So in that first section, the, the question that just jumps to my mind when I read that, that text is, who, who is this guy, right? Who, who is Tychicus? Like, what is he to Paul? How, how did he come to be included in this gospel message? Well, Tychicus, Tychicus <laughs> God, man, I can't say it now. Um, he's a dear brother and faithful servant or minister in the Lord, we see in verse 21. He's one of Paul's closest associates. He speaks of him on other occasions. You can find that in Colossians 4 7, 2 Timothy 4 12, Titus 3 12. And obviously, it seems as though he would be known by the readers um, that, that Paul is sending him to. We, we think that because Luke not only describes him as an Asian, but also brackets him with Trophimus, whom later he calls an Ephesian, right? So it's possible that he may have been an Ephesian himself. If not, he's at least from the general area in which Paul is sending him back to. And to get a visit from him is, is the next best thing from getting a visit from Paul himself. Paul certainly sent him during his second imprisonment in Rome, and kind of reading between the lines of both Ephesians and Colossians, because he's also the deliverer of that message as well, it, it just seems as though they would have known him, that he would have been there and, and they knew who he was. So what is this guy doing? Like, What does Paul want him to do for him? Well, Paul gives us three things in these verses that he is to do for him. First, Paul entrusts him with the letter to deliver, right? This, this is something important, something valuable. He wants to make sure that it gets from point A to point B. And he does this not only with the letter to the Ephesians, but also with the letter to the Colossians. Paul apparently had complete confidence in this younger assistant of his. And he'll rely on him not only to deliver the letter safely, that's the first thing, but the second thing Paul expects him to do is to supplement the letter's message with some personal news. He's, he's sending him, he says, that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. He will tell you everything, in verse 21. In verse 22, indeed, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. Three times Paul reiterates his intention that Tychicus would bring his readers up to date on news of Paul and what's happening in his ministry. This explains the absence at the end of the letter of personal messages. If you are familiar with Paul's other letters, he likes to end his letters a lot of time by sending like personal shout-outs, if you will, to individuals in those local churches. But he doesn't do that here because he doesn't have to. He's sending Tychicus to do that for him, that he's going to be delivering those personal messages in person. The third reason that Paul is sending him, we see in verse 22, that he may encourage your hearts. Paul is seeking to desire an even stronger personal connection between himself and the Christians in Ephesus. Here we see that all of the theological theory 
of Ephesians is turning into applied theology, which is the goal of any good theology, is to go from theoretical thought to application, to lived out theology. And Paul sees himself, as well as these Ephesians, as a part of God's new society. This is, this is what Ephesians is, is teaching us about. This, this whole breakdown between Jew and Gentile, between master and slave, between male and female. There is, a, there is an equality now at the cross because of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, is living that out in these final words of this letter. And Paul wants to deepen their connection in three ways. Prayer, correspondence, and visits. As way of application this morning from this section, let me, let me encourage you that these same three ways help us today to turn theological theory of Ephesians into applied theology. Prayer, correspondence, and visits are still three major means by which we as Christians and churches can enrich one another and so contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. Let's look at these just really quickly. Prayer. I, I would encourage you guys this morning to pray not only for each other, which I hope you're doing, but, but also to pray for your brothers and sisters in other churches. Pray for our church plants that we support, our, our missionaries regularly. Make, make that a part of your normal prayer life to include those people. But not just the ones that we as a church support. There are ones that you know personally, that you have relationships with. Pray for them. That, that, that grows your bond with them as you pray for them. Because if you're like me, I can't just aimlessly pray for people. It leads me to picking up the phone, right? And calling and say, is there anything I can be praying for you about? And, and so that gets us to the second thing, correspondence. Now for Paul, this was difficult. This meant, I got to write a letter. I got to put it on a boat. I got to wait. Maybe they write me back. Maybe they don't. I feel sorry for all these people that have anxiety over someone not answering their text message in like two seconds nowadays. How would you have lived back then? Did they get my letter? I wonder if they're mad at me. Oh my gosh, they're not saying anything back, right? We, we live in this amazing time where we can just send quick correspondence to one another. You, you can hop on a video call and look at the missionaries halfway around the world that we support or ones you know and just encourage them. I, listen, I tell you, a lot of them, I've, I've counseled a lot of missionaries and one of the things that they struggle with is feeling as though, and they know it's their feelings and they know it's wrong, but feeling as though they're forgotten. Because they come typically from a church community where they have a lot of relationships. And you know, over the first couple months, people write, people call, and then, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And, and, and all of a sudden, months have gone by and they haven't heard from anybody. Now, they know God's with them and they know they're not alone, but... It's, it's a struggle that they have. And, and I know you think, well, yeah, they're so busy. Well, a missed call is still a call. It still shows them that somebody cares and somebody's thinking about them. So at least try. 
Again, we, we live in a great age where you have a multitude of ways to correspond with them. But I also want to just encourage you a little bit here to not forget old school. I, listen, I've got a folder with some letters and cards in it that when I'm having a bad day, I just I pull those out and I look at those. And it reminds me why I do what I do. And I know every day is not going to be a great day. I know that. So that's why I keep those. And so few people write letters or send cards anymore. It would really make your correspondence stand out above the rest. Again, I'm not diminishing emails and texts and calls. Do those things too. But every once in a while, sit down and write out a letter. I guarantee you it will mean a lot to the Christians that you're sending it to. Finally, visits. One of the things that I personally miss the most about being in school were my regular trips and being able to go to church in Louisville at Emmanuel or Sojourn and, and getting to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Some were my friends that were attending school and that lived there, but some I met just on those trips. And it was always so encouraging for me to go. And, and whenever you're traveling, again, let me encourage you, be intentional. Get, get on the internet. Find churches in the area in which you're traveling to. Some of you like to go to the beach. Some of you like to go to the mountains. Both have churches. Be intentional about it. Find, and visit it. Go back. And I would encourage you, if it's a place you go to, if your family, like you always go to St. Augustine or you always go to uh, Pigeon Forge, find a church and visit it every time you go. Get to know some of the people. Figure out how you can pray for them. Again, that's now someone else you can be praying for when you come back home. Use your trips. Go visit other churches. Meet other Christians. Learn how to pray not only for our church, but Paul's theoretical theology is that we are all one body. Right? We, we are a local body, a local representation of that, but every gospel-centered church is part of a larger body. And when we go and visit and, and are encouraged that just leads us into a deeper relationship and a deeper sense of all of what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. I love the fact that no matter where we go in the world, God's got a representative. My, my daughter Grace is fixing to go to art school and she was all excited because they have an opportunity to go to Paris for a semester and study art there. And immediately I thought... You know, right? I'm a parent. But then I thought, you know what? My friend Jason at Iglesia Church in Paris, I know I can pick up the phone and call him and say, hey, my daughter needs help. Would you go pick her up, please? Would you go help her? And either he, him or someone from that church in Paris would go and help. Man, that, that's amazing. And, and that's, that's what we have. And guys, people resist church so much but but this new society that god is calling us to it is here 
not only to glorify him, that, that's first and foremost, but it's also to be a family to those who need a family that may not have it. Each of you have children and you, you send them out into the world and you have to entrust that the city that they go and live with, that they're going to find brothers and sisters in Christ that will continue to push them toward Jesus and to glorify them. And some of you, if you, if you get to that place, again, it's just a little practical thing, but if you're looking at transferring jobs, you're looking to move, say, go find a church first. Ask me, ask Jamie. We will help you find a local church to be involved with. Because there's nothing like moving to a community and knowing no one. And having that family, having that new society that Paul has been teaching us about here in Ephesians, it, it gives us a safety net no matter where we go. We must deepen our fellowship with one another. And Paul sets... An example for that in Ephesians. He does that by praying for one another. Paul recorded two of his prayers in chapters 1 and 3 before requesting their prayers for him in verse 19 or 20. This is not a one-way relationship to Paul. right? Paul's not saying, well, I'm going to pray for y'all. Right, I know y'all need it, but I'm good. right? No, he's like, look, this is this is two-way relationship. I'm going to pray for you, but hey, I need you to pray for me. By his letters that he's sending, that's his correspondence, and through sending Tychicus, who would both bring them information about Paul and seek to encourage them. So we see all three in the letter to the Ephesians here. Now let's look at the last two verses. Verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. It was a custom in the ancient world at the time in which Paul is writing for correspondents to end their letters with a wish. Usually a secular wish. Um, sometimes even their gods were invoked. And typically that wish was for the reader's health or happiness as a form of a blessing. And Paul uses the same way of ending this letter. Paul decides to Christianize the concept of a final wish. And this is one of the things I love about Paul. He takes what his readers would know, what they would be familiar with, and he just Christianizes them. He doesn't, doesn't say, oh, i got to throw this out and do something totally different. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going to take what they got, but I'm going to make it better. I'm going to add our faith. I'm going to add God to what I'm saying. Sproul reminds us that a benediction is not a prayer, but a benediction literally means a good saying. So again, this is Paul taking that idea of a wish or a good saying and Christianizing. So what, what we now as Christians love and cherish and call a benediction, it finds its roots in this ancient secular form of ending a letter. And you'll see in this letter that it's half wish and half prayer. For the blessings that he desires for his readers will come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul ends his letters with the combination of his two favorite words, grace and peace. Words that find their roots in the Old Testament, 
Words that should mark every Christian's life. Grace and peace. Commenting on the word peace, Sproul said this, It was the great desire of every Jew to understand, to know, and to experience a lasting peace. Not only a cessation of warfare with foreign enemies, but a cessation of warfare with God himself. Paul says, this is my prayer for you, that you will be nurtured and grow, and that you will know the peace of God. Peace has been a a major theme in Ephesians. In the doctrinal section, in the first couple of chapters, Paul has explained how Jesus Christ is our peace, since he has broken down the dividing wall and created a single new humanity, so making peace, Paul says. And how then he came and preached peace. Consequently, the ethical section of the last half, or the application, if you will, of the letter, Paul has pleaded them both to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and to forbear one another in love, verses, or chapter 4, 2 through 3, and to walk in love as Christ loved us, 5-2. Peace and love belong together. Because peace is reconciliation, but love is the source and the outflow that leads to reconciliation. Paul paints a beautiful picture of church fellowship in Ephesians. And the Christian home, one that should be pervaded by love and peace. And even though we're reminded at the end of this letter that there will never be a peace treaty between us and evil, Paul still calls us to live a life of peace and love. And when Paul gives this apostolic benediction to his readers, he is speaking as an ambassador to a king. He's announcing this benediction over the people. So when Paul refers to the peace and grace and love and faith, he is not saying grace to you and peace from me. But he's announcing a promise of grace, peace, faith, and love that comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's therefore speaking for both the Father and the Son as their ambassador. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That is a love that is real. The love of Christ that Paul is speaking of here is not romantic infatuation, but it's an enduring, abiding love that perseveres to the end. Of the four words we find in this section, peace, love, faith, and grace, The two that stand out particularly are grace and peace. Because if you flip back over to Ephesians chapter 1, that's how the apostle begins this letter. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2. And here he's ending with a similar reference to grace and peace. No No two words could summarize the message of this letter better. For peace is the sense of of reconciliation with God. And because of that reconciliation, reconciliation with one another. 
That's the great achievement of Jesus Christ that Paul is explaining in the book of Ephesians, is that we can be not only reconciled to God, which in and of itself is amazing, but we can be reconciled to one another. Husbands and wives can be reconciled to one another. Parents and children can be reconciled to one another. Hence Paul's wishing of peace in verse 23. To those who belong to each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And of grace to all those who love Christ. Without discrimination, whatever race, whatever rank, whatever age, whatever sex. These are essential elements of being a member of God's new society. It's a wish. It's a prayer that the members of God's new society may live in harmony as brothers and sisters in his family, at peace and in love with him and with each other, together with a recognition that only by his grace can this dream come true. Now, I want to close out and, and apply this section, close out our sermon and, and kind of apply this section by talking to you a little bit about the Lord's Supper. So our goal pre-COVID was to every other week come to this table and, and to be reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and there really is not a more beautiful picture of everything that Paul has been teaching us in Ephesians than the Lord's Supper. You see, Paul's explained that God is creating a, a new society. And this new society is based on the finished work of Christ. It's also a gift that is given to us. So for everyone that takes that gift and, and partakes in that gift, you become in him. And then Paul lists out all the benefits of being in him. And when Christians all over the world, they gather at this table, we're reminded of grace and peace. Jesus gave his body on that cross and died for us. That, that was grace. We don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. God extended grace to his enemies by sending his son to die for us even while we were still enemies. That's grace, friends. But there's also peace. Because of this blood, that in the Lord's Supper is represented by the wine. It was spilled out, an offering, once for all. And that gives us peace with God. There is now no more need of another sacrifice because of the sacrifice that was made for us. Grace and peace. His body and his blood. 
And so when we as believers come to this table, we're also celebrating the new society, the new people of God that Paul has been teaching us about in Ephesians. And the only prerequisite to coming to this table is being in him. That's it. For those that have put their faith and trust, that have accepted the free gift of salvation, that that makes you in him. That makes you part of his family. This new family of God that he has created. And and, and, and please, I want you to understand, this is a celebration. This is not something we come to with our heads held low, as though, oh, woe is me. Guys, you get grace, and you get peace. This is a celebration. This, This should be like a party for us. Something we look forward to. Something we miss when we don't get to have it, as we've all experienced over the last couple of years. And I know some of you are going, okay, Dale, but there's, this, there's these verses in 1 Corinthians that I, you know, I read about this. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through, 27 through 29 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And he goes on to list some of that judgment. And some of you may be thinking, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, am I participating in an unworthy manner? And that, that might limit your celebration aspect, because you're worried, and rightfully so. But again, the message of Ephesians explains that text. Just a few verses earlier, Paul said this, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. What Paul is referring to in this chapter about the Lord's Supper is there are people in the church who are being divisive. Those people are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Specifically, with the Corinthian church, it was because they were separating the rich people from the poor people. Okay? The idea of celebrating the Lord's Supper like we do would have been unheard of to the the church then. There would have been several smaller rooms partaking in the Lord's Supper. Together, but yet separate. And so some of those Christians were segregating themselves off and taking advantage of the poor. And so Paul says, why are you dividing? You're one. You're part of one new humanity. One new community. That 
totally betrays what we are. And therefore, you are taking it in an unworthy manner. Okay? I know some of you have been taught that this is about your individual sin. If taking communion in an unworthy manner is you being a sinner, then we are going to stop doing communion because I do not want to condemn you to that judgment. But that is not what that text is talking about. Is it good to search yourself and to confess your sin? Absolutely. It's good to do that every day. But when it talks about the table and it talks about coming and celebrating what Jesus has done, it's celebrating our unity. Not only here, but as they do it in Manchester, as they do it in Tulsa, as they do it in Guatemala, as they do it all over the world. It's it's a bigger picture of what Paul is teaching about in Ephesians, that we are one body, one fellowship, one humanity. And so this morning, as we close, I want want you to ask yourself, have I been partaking in community in an unworthy manner? And by that I mean, are you divisive? Are you trying to divide people? If you are, confess of that. Repent of that. And then come and celebrate grace and peace. And and maybe some of you, as a form of repentance, need to go and confess that to the people that you have been divisive to. And I would encourage you, go do that before you come. But then come and celebrate grace and peace that has been extended to every single person that is in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Father, we don't deserve all of the gifts that you have given us. But yet you love us and and you you sent your son to die for us. To to be the offering, the sacrifice that, that we can never make. And so as we come this morning celebrating the grace and the peace that has been extended to us through Jesus. God, I pray that it would would unify us in a way this morning, maybe like never before. But again, not only with us as a local body, that that would just be the beginning, Lord, but, but there would be a ripple effect with the brothers and sisters in our lives, the missionaries and the church planners and the churches that we support and encourage, but also for our local churches that are lifting up the gospel faithfully, Lord. And Father, I pray now that you would also search our hearts. If there is a place in which we, through our own selfishness, as James says, our, we, we quarrel and fight because of what's in us. And we want our way. And Lord, maybe things haven't been our way. 
And so we've been creating division. Lord, I, I pray this morning that we would confess of that and repent of that and come in a worthy way which is unified this morning. Unified around the gospel and around Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of who may be here this morning that aren't in him, Lord, I pray that they would watch and they would witness us celebrating you. And Lord, that would lead them to want to be in him as well. Father, I pray you bless this time.